Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 148, Apple's Billion Users. Hi, I'm Neil. In a few days, I will be flying out to California to attend WWDC, Apple's Developers Conference. Each year, WWDC ends up having a slightly different feel depending on what Apple announces. However, ultimately, it's all about the ecosystem. By the end of next week, we will know much more about where Apple wants to bring the ecosystem over the next 12 months. More importantly, many of the announcements Apple makes during one year's WWDC has implications for the product line over the next two or three years. Ahead of this year's WWDC, I wanted to focus on Apple's ecosystem. It's massive. Approximately a billion people using more than 1.4 billion Apple devices. Even as iPhone sales decline, Apple's bringing tens of millions of new people into the ecosystem. However, for reasons that we will talk about in this episode, I think we're getting to a point where it is prudent to begin thinking about what user growth actually means to Apple. Where is the opportunity for Apple when it comes to the number of users in the ecosystem? The best place to begin is to focus on some of the numbers. As a whole, Apple remains a leader in terms of the amount of financial disclosure that the company provides. While the past few months have been pretty dicey in terms of Apple moving away from unit sales and also average selling price, the company began to give data that, in my opinion, is much more useful. So while we lost unit sales disclosure, we gained install base disclosure. How many devices are being used? And Apple went further to actually disclose the number of iPhones being used. Those are incredibly valuable data points. And so when it comes to estimating the total number of Apple users, it's actually a relatively straightforward exercise. This past January, Apple disclosed that there were more than 900 million iPhones in the wild. Now, when we think about the iPhone, it's not a shared device. You don't have families with one iPhone and all the different family members are using it. Pretty much, it's one iPhone for one person. Now, of course, there are some circumstances where that doesn't apply. Maybe a developer will have multiple iPhones for testing purposes. In enterprise, there may be situations where someone will have a personal iPhone and then one that's provided by the company. But I don't think those circumstances, I don't think those situations are that common. And so Apple's disclosure that there are more than 900 million iPhones in the wild, it implies that there are approximately 900 million people using iPhones. The exact number of iPhones in the wild probably now exceeds 925 million. So what that ends up doing is it gives us some wiggle room to take into account developers using multiple iPhones, to take into account situations where people may have two or more iPhones because of work versus personal. But 900 million people using an iPhone. It's a remarkable statistic. And by the way, prior to Apple disclosing that number, 
I had been keeping track of this figure with my own model. I would take what we knew about the iPhone business, primarily unit sales. We also did get from time to time some comments about how upgrading was going or how the number of new users into the iPhone install base was trending. I took all of that data, put it into my model, and I was trying to track how the iPhone install base was growing. And it actually, my results were pretty close to what Apple disclosed. So I was quite happy because it told me that the model, the methodology behind the model worked. And I used that same model for the iPad. And more recently, I've started to use that for Apple Watch. So I'm pretty confident in all of my install base estimates because of that model. I could probably spend an entire episode talking about the install base model, but what I will say is it's primarily based on tracking users and their upgrade patterns. And so in order to do that, you have to decompose the install base based on when someone entered the install base for the first time. So that means when did someone buy a new iPhone from Apple or a third-party retailer? Let's say someone did that in 2016. That user will be put into the 2016 category in my model. I will then model, I will estimate, what is the upgrade pattern for those users? And I'll do that for every year. Because in my theory, I think someone who entered the install base, say, in 2008 or 2009, I think they display a slightly different tendency when it comes to upgrading versus someone who just joined the iPhone install base. Ultimately, what I'm doing is trying to break apart iPhone sales into sales to upgraders and sales to new users. Because if you have pretty good estimates for those two variables, then you can track, you can monitor how the iPhone install base has grown over time. Now, again, things have gotten a little bit more complicated recently because Apple has moved away from unit sales. Yet, I'm still confident that the numbers I'm relying on work. And that's one reason why when <laughs> Apple disclosed the number and it wasn't too far away from my estimate, I was excited because now I can apply this same model to the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch is now getting old enough where you're going to need a little bit more in terms of modeling to figure out how many people actually are wearing Apple Watches. So that's the number of iPhones in the wild. It's a figure that Apple provided, and I have since updated that figure. And I probably do that, I think, every three months or so. Um, that's, that, that's my goal. There was another data point that Apple provided that's essential for figuring out how many people are in the Apple ecosystem. Apple disclosed that there were 1.4 billion active devices in the install base. That was as of January 2019. That total was up by 100 million devices in the preceding 12 months and up by 400 million devices over the preceding three years. So not only did we get the total, but we got the growth in that total, which is very, very useful. What does that tell us? There are 500 million Apple devices being used that aren't iPhones. Now, a majority of those 500 million devices are iPads. You then have the Mac represents another 110 million of those devices. The rest is made up of a collection of wearables and home accessories. 
Given my Mac and iPad install base estimates, a conservative estimate is that there are at least 100 million people who use either an iPad or a Mac, but not an iPhone. So what you can do is take that 100 million and add it to the 900 million people who use an iPhone. That leads to a billion users. In my opinion, that's a conservative number. That 100 million people who use either an iPad or a Mac but not an iPhone, it could be more than that. A billion users is quite the accomplishment for Apple, considering how the company does not give away or subsidize hardware. When you compare a billion users to some of these other companies, I think it provides some context. Amazon, for example, has approximately 100 million Prime users. We can look at Twitter. Twitter sells a free product. Free is in quotation marks, by the way. Twitter has 125 million daily users. A, quote, free Google service is widely considered a success once it surpasses a billion users. WeChat recently surpassed a billion daily users. Facebook. Facebook sells a, quote, free product, 1.6 billion daily users. Using my estimate for the total number of Apple users and combining that with Apple's current revenue run rate, we reach a figure for the amount that is spent per user per year. On average, it's $258. There are limitations found with relying on averages in this context. So for example, Apple's ecosystem strength is dependent on geography. What that means is that the amount of revenue per user per year will probably be different in the U.S., versus, say, Spain, France, China. In addition, you have other factors like the gray market. I think that distorts this average. As a result, I segmented Apple's user base in order to gain additional insight into revenue per user figures. There are approximately 200 million Apple users who have never purchased a new product from Apple or a retailer. Instead, these users rely on Apple products that were acquired or obtained via the gray market. The overall contribution to Apple's revenue from those 200 million users probably isn't too great. It's probably only a few dollars per month, if that. I then looked at the other end of the spectrum. The U.S. represents Apple's stronghold when it comes to ecosystem strength. So you could take hardware revenue and then add all of these subscriptions, Apple Music, Paid, iCloud, third-party subscriptions through the App Store. It's not unreasonable to assume that approximately 50 million to 75 million users spend an average of $500 per year on Apple products and services. There are then other pockets of these core users in various countries, including China, Japan, the UK, and Australia. Now, based on Apple's install-based disclosure, we know that there are at least 400 million Apple users who use only one Apple device, an iPhone, and the actual number could be much higher. 
That 400 million figure is simply obtained by using the two data points from Apple, that there were 1.4 billion devices out there in the wild, and 900 million of them were iPhones. Given an iPhone upgrade cycle of four years and an iPhone average selling price of approximately $750, this tells us that at least 400 million people in Apple's install base are likely spending somewhere around $200 per year. After that exercise, we have a much better look at revenue per user figures for Apple's install base. There are three groupings. You have 200 million people spending an average of $25 per year. This is the gray market. You then have 620 million people spending an average of $260 per year. And that group includes 400 million iPhone-only users upgrading every four years. That's the assumption I'm using. And then that leaves the 180 million people spending on average $500 per year. And these are the core users. So they're buying a number of Apple products. They're paying for various services and subscriptions. Now, when it comes to the growth and Apple's user base. The iPhone has been Apple's primary vehicle for bringing people into the ecosystem. No other Apple product has come close to the iPhone. (laughs) So over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article titled Apple's Billing Users, I use the same title for the weekly article in this podcast episode because it was short and sweet. And I think it properly described what the discussion is going to be about. Anyways, exhibit one, highlights my estimates for the number of users buying their first new iPhone broken out by year. In my opinion, this serves as a rough proxy for the number of people entering Apple's ecosystem. Based on recent iPhone sales trends, there is evidence of fewer users buying their first new iPhone. And the decline is noteworthy. For example, my expectation is for 52 million people to buy their first new iPhone in 2019. That's down 60% from the peak number seen in 2016. Now, after the iPhone, the iPad would be the second largest driver bringing new users into the Apple ecosystem. However, the iPad install base is a third of the size of the iPhone install base. That means that the new user totals driven by iPad, just don't compare to those of iPhone. And so in Exhibit 2, what I did was I took all of these pieces, I took all of my models, and I came up with my estimate for how Apple's overall ecosystem has grown in terms of the number of users. Because again, looking at just the number of people buying their first new iPhone by year, That's only a rough proxy. There are other factors in there that you really do have to consider. So after making all those considerations, my estimate is that in 2015, Apple had 650 million users. 2016, that number jumped to 790. 2017, 898. 2018, 980. So you can see the difference, the growth is slowing as time goes on. And in 2019, I have over a billion. So I don't think there's any question here that 
Apple's user growth is slowing. Much of this is due to Apple running out of premium smartphone users in key markets like China and India. This brings us to sort of the second part of this discussion. So we've talked about the numbers. We have the estimates. What does it all mean? Some people are convinced that slowing user growth represents a warning sign for Apple. And the concern is that Apple will once again look to milk existing users with higher priced products and all of these services in order to offset slowing hardware sales. That's a narrative that you hear quite a bit today. Where does that concern come from? How was that narrative born? Much of that fear is based on how the lack of new user growth nearly killed Apple in the 1990s. Instead of focusing on new user growth, Apple milked existing Mac users for as much money as possible. The end result was Apple having a complicated product line that lacked focus and vision. In my view, that is an incorrect way of thinking about today's situation. Much has changed for Apple over the past 25 years. During the mid-1990s, Apple's user base was a fraction of the size of today's user base. In the mid-1990s, Apple had around 25 million users. That's it. Again, that may sound like a lot, but I don't think 25 million was large enough to reach sustainability. You needed more. And instead of focusing on bringing in new users, Apple took the easy route. They simply kept selling to existing users. They tried selling more and more. Look at Apple today. Apple has 40 times the number of users. They're bringing in 25 million users every six months. Apple's billion users comprise a self-sufficient ecosystem. The company is in a strong position to sell additional devices and services to these billion users. You can do that without jeopardizing the long-term health of the ecosystem. In my view, Apple is just in a fundamentally different position here. Now, when we think about where this could go, we have new user growth slowing. I, I don't think it's a given that Apple reaches some type of plateau in terms of the number of users. As Apple continues to move into more personal devices, such as wearables, the company's addressable market will expand, especially when you look at emerging markets. So for countries like Brazil and India, products like iPhones, iPads, and Macs, they may not be the best tools for bringing new users into the ecosystem. Instead, look at lower-priced wearables. Those may eventually open the doors to tens, if not hundreds of millions of new Apple users in markets that up to now have been largely out of reach. While that type of new user growth represents a long-term opportunity for Apple, I think there's something that's even more intriguing here when it comes to opportunities. What is Apple? Apple's a design company. Apple is tasked with developing tools capable of improving people's lives. That mission 
plays a critical role when figuring out how best to judge Apple and how to think about Apple and new user growth. Apple doesn't think about financial items like revenue or profit margins when developing products. That same principle applies to new user growth. You don't have Johnny Ive and the industrial design group sitting around the table coming up with products for the purpose of bringing new users into the ecosystem or coming up with products because they need to increase revenue per user. That kind of motivation would have manifested itself in a less focused product line over time. Now, Johnny Ive says this time and time, and I just don't think people believe him when he says it. Now, Apple does consider and think about how new products may fit within the existing product line. We could look at Apple Watch as a great example of this. Apple launched Apple Watch as an iPhone accessory. We can look ahead at a pair of smart glasses. I think they will be similarly positioned as an accessory out of the gate. That is a key part of Apple's long-standing goal of making technology more personal and having new products serve as simpler alternatives to existing products. This brings us to the grand unified theory of Apple products, which is what I came up with as a framework connecting all of Apple's products. There's an implication found with Apple's product strategy, and that is one of Apple's key opportunities going forward is found with developing and then selling new tools to existing Apple users. And what this can do is create a feedback loop. You would have new tools and services drive higher user loyalty and engagement. You would then have higher user loyalty and engagement drive greater adoption of tools and services. And then just keeps going and going. This will likely manifest itself in higher revenue per user over time as Apple users rely on additional tools in their lives. And as Johnny has said in the past, when you think about financial items like revenue, profit, I think we could extend that to revenue per user or maybe even the number of users. All of those metrics, they end up being byproducts of a successful product strategy. So it's not that Apple lets all of these metrics guide product strategy forward. It's not that they're coming up with products because they have to boost revenue. They have to drive profit. They have to bring new users into the ecosystem. That's not how it works. Instead, they are extremely confident. And really, this is built into Apple's culture. That if the product development process that exists at Apple is successful, And that is the way that raw ideas are eventually turned into tangible products that can be manufactured at scale. If that process is successful, the byproduct would then be revenue, profit, higher revenue per user, and additional users. So this brings us back to some of my calculations from early in the episode, where we looked at the Apple install base by groups. So you had 200 million people in the gray market, 
You had 180 million core users that were spending a lot more. And then in the middle, you had about 620 million people spending somewhere around $260 per year on Apple products and services. Apple has an opportunity for existing Apple users to become more engaged with the ecosystem. We can look at wearables as one of the best examples of this. With wearables, Apple is in a good position to drive a portion of the 400 million users who likely only have an iPhone to buy another Apple device. How do you measure that opportunity? If we assume that half of those 400 million people eventually buy a wearable device, an assumption that I don't think is out of question, well, that would be 200 million people spending more like $350 per year versus the current $260 per year. In that circumstance, in that scenario, Apple could see an additional $18 billion of revenue per year. Another opportunity is found with those 200 million users who are part of the Apple ecosystem via the gray market. If Apple can sell additional tools to a portion of those users, I think Apple could see something in the neighborhood of $12 billion of additional revenue per year. And that figure is obtained by taking 100 million people, spending more like $150 per year versus the current $25 per year. So you could see how all of this is coming together. We took apart Apple's install base to look at the different segments that comprise that total. Because you don't just have one average Apple user. It doesn't make sense. Everyone is different. And when you break apart that average, you'll find, well, there's some people who aren't spending much on Apple products. There are some people who are spending a lot. And of course, you have the bulk of the people somewhere in the middle. The opportunity is to have those less engaged users become more engaged. I think that makes a lot more sense than just looking at one revenue per user figure and then saying, well, Apple has to grow that one figure by $100 or by $50 in order to grow revenue. That doesn't, it's not realistic. That's not how it really works. Instead, when you discover that loyalty rates, engagement levels, essentially the degree to which someone is involved in the Apple ecosystem varies within the install base, you can then see how wearable devices in particular are such an effective tool at driving people deeper into the ecosystem. I think that's going to represent the bulk of Apple's growth opportunity over the next few years. In the mid-1990s, Apple simply tried to milk its limited number of users of more money. We now see Apple engaged in expanding its user tool arsenal. It's a completely different strategy because the company is nothing like it was in the mid-1990s. And of course, we can't forget that Apple is still bringing new users into the ecosystem. I think that's always something that we have to kind of keep the back of our mind. Going forward, Apple will continue to face various risks when it comes to maintaining user loyalty and engagement. I don't want to make it seem like it's a given that user loyalty will remain high. Apple has to come up with tools that people love. 
<laughs> it's hard to do, but that is essential. I think Apple has to make sure that the culture and the product development process that are found within Apple remain robust. And you don't see any deterioration in really what, what motivates Apple, what drives Apple. You then have factors that are outside of Apple's control, economic, geopolitical developments. Of course, we have things like China, emerging markets. That's obviously something to keep in mind. But I don't think any of those factors really change the big picture here. And that is Apple's billion users is a game changer. It opens certain doors and opportunities that the company has never had up to now. And I think some of those opportunities amount to new ways of handling risk, new ways of handling competition. Apple has reached a level of ecosystem strength that still hasn't been fully digested by the marketplace. That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in this episode and in the weekly articles over at AboveAllen.com, and you want more of it throughout the week, I think you'd be interested in becoming an Above Avalon member. The cornerstone of Above Avalon membership is access to my exclusive daily updates about Apple. These are daily emails sent directly to your inbox. Each one is about 2,000 words and typically covers three stories. I talk about everything from Apple business and strategy analysis to earnings, financial estimates. I also talk about current news that has an impact on Apple. I also talk about Apple competitors, events, things that I think matter to Apple. I like to say, if it is of interest to Apple, it is something I pay attention to. To receive the daily updates, all you have to do is become an Above Avalon member. So you could go over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. While the daily updates represent the cornerstone of membership, members also have other privileges and benefits. For example, members receive my exclusive reports about Apple. So these are in-depth examinations into Apple's business strategy. Each report covers one topic. Those reports are available at no additional cost. Members have access to my working Apple earnings model containing all of my financial projections. Again, that's available at no additional cost. There's priority email access, so you can receive timely responses to email questions. We have a forum, so you can chat with other Above Avalon members. And there's an archive, so you can read daily updates previously sent to members. For additional information, everything is found on that membership page over at AboveAvalon.com. One final thing that I wanted to mention, recently I had been getting questions regarding group subscriptions to Above Avalon. So what do you do if you want multiple people to become members? I did recently launch a revised page for group subscriptions. And so when you're on the main membership page, just scroll down right after the sign-up forms. You'll see a section called Group Subscriptions. There's a link there that will take you to a new page that has all of the information that you need to know for creating a group subscription for your entire team or company. There's also information on group subscription pricing, and there is a sign-up form. So there's much more automation that's now part of the process versus the previous way of creating a group subscription. So I did want to point that out. 
Above Avalon is fully sustained by membership. So if you are currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you're thinking about becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, I will be flying out to WWDC in a few days. All of my reactions, perspective, and notes from WWDC will be sent to Above Avalon members next week via the daily updates. So keep that in mind. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.